Welcome to today's audio podcast, a sermon teaching from Grace Bible Church of Akron. If you enjoy the teaching ministry of GBC and would like to enjoy more resources and weekly updates, we hope you will visit our website at gbcakron.org. Please take a moment to let us know how this ministry is impacting your life by emailing us at info at gbcakron.org. That's I-N-F-O at gbcakron.org. Also, if you would like to support Grace Bible Church, you may do so by visiting gbcakron.org forward slash giving. Thank you for listening and enjoy the podcast. So those of you who know me know that I frequently drop Christian hip-hop lyrics in my sermon. So if you've been following my preaching for any amount of years, I couldn't even tally up the number of Christian hip hop songs that I have quoted from this stage or other stages, and certainly not in youth group. I'm sure that my students are tired of hearing them, and maybe they might even have been reused several times. But I have never, to my knowledge, dropped a country lyric. I have not. And I'm about to drop two today, okay? All right, so. So I want to, I want to, before you get up and leave, I will not sing them, okay? I'm not going to sing the country lyrics, but I have learned that living in this area, um, New Franklin and, 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 and Canal Fulton, this the greater Akron area, that country music contains a great deal of wisdom, okay? So I'm going to share two songs with you this morning. The first is this song, By Dirt, by Jordan Davis. Half of you already know the song, right? But I want to, you know, the song, it highlights the importance of spending time with family. It highlights the importance of finding a career that is fulfilling, right? Not just get a job, but do something you love, right? And because and, you guys know the song. But one, one of the things that also highlights is the significance of contributing financially to the church, Right? The line is this one, we throw a little money at the plate of church. Now, this was really the only part of the song that I took issue with. I didn't like the word a little, you know? And we don't have a plate. We don't have a plate here at Grace. We don't pass one around. We use push pay. So I'm going to change the lyric of the song to, to send some big money through push pay at church. But then after doing that, I realized the song's no longer catchy, and so no one would listen to it. So that's a joke. That's a joke. But no, that song contains a great deal of wisdom, focusing on your family, spending time with them, getting a career that's enjoyable, right? But another song, penned and performed by country singer Craig Morgan, contains some wisdom also. In fact, we might even say that it really captures what a lot of people would call good old American Christian values, okay? And the song is called God, Family, and Country, Some of you may have heard it. Some of you are singing it in your head right now. I cannot sing it. I listened to it maybe three times. It's a great song. Powerful. If you haven't, Spotify it later. God, family, country. Craig Morgan. But one of the things it talks about is the importance of fighting for God, fighting for your family, and fighting for your country. And I gotta say this. If we are serious about fighting for these things that I would consider to be very, very valuable, and we should fight for them. We need to know that sometimes following God and, or fighting for God and fighting for country will mean that we're being pulled in two different directions. 
Sometimes it means that to follow God, we have to ignore the concerns of our families. Sometimes it means that following God means we have to choose between patriotism and prioritizing the kingdom of God. Right, see, here's the thing I've learned is, as easy as it sounds, to fight for God, family, country, sometimes fighting for those things does not run parallel. Sometimes our loyalty to those things cannot be parallel. And so what I'm going to say now is that it's a defining moment for us in our faith when we realize that our loyalty to God, family, and country has a pecking order. It has a pecking order. And Jesus talked about this. And so if you have a Bible, if you would turn with me to Mark chapter three, beginning in verse 20, we're gonna be hanging out in this passage today looking at this pecking order when it comes to fighting for God, family, and country. So we begin by reading verse 20 and 21. And this is what it says. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. So right here in the beginning of this passage, there is a tug of war going on for Jesus' loyalty. He has on the one side, God's call on his life to do the work that God has called him to do. We might call that his public ministry. He is going to live out his mission. But on the other hand, we have his family coming to collect him coming to take charge of him, trying to stop him because they are concerned for him. You see, you have to understand is that at this point, this was a point in Jesus' life where his public ministry had started to take off. And it mentions in this passage that a large group of people were flooding into a house. Most people think it was Peter's house. And they were so crowded in there that Jesus and his disciples couldn't even do normal things to take care of themselves like eat, right? It mentions they couldn't eat. There were so, there were so many people in there that, that they, were, they were eager to hear about Jesus and what he was doing. They were eager to hear his teachings, to witness his miracles. And so he was neglecting, we might say, his, you know, self, his self-needs. But there was another side to this. Just as the crowds were following Jesus, so was the publicity. And it wasn't the positive kind. So you see, Jesus' ministry was catching the attention of prominent leaders, both in Rome and also in the Jewish like hierarchy. And that kind of publicity painted a target on Jesus' back. And his family was worried that they would be lumped into Jesus' lunatic revolution. So they said he was out of his mind. They were worried about Jesus. They wanted Jesus to cut out the nonsense. So they went to collect him. And so part of it was their fear for 
Jesus's life, right? They cared about him, but part of it was the fear or the selfishness of themselves. They, they didn't want to be associated with this thing that was making the headlines. You see, words like rebellion and revolution, and, and, and they were being tossed around, and, and the headlines were saying things like, Jesus ticks off this leader, this prominent religious leader. They, they were concerned for themselves, but I, but I want to go ahead and say this because it, it'd be unfair to say that they were only just concerned about themselves. They were also concerned about Jesus and his well-being, right? And this makes sense, right? Because as we follow God, what we discover is that when we prioritize God, sometimes our family, they'll come alongside and they'll have legitimate concerns that are well-intentioned. And in this passage, again, we, we see that Jesus was neglecting some of his basic needs in order to serve others. He didn't eat. But as Pastor Kerry mentioned before, think about this for a second. As Pastor Kerry mentioned before, Jesus was also homeless. He was jobless. He didn't have a, you know, a bank account full of savings. Imagine being his family. They would be concerned for him. Like, what are you, Jesus, don't you know you're supposed to have a job by this time? You're about, what, 30? We need a job. And then, Jesus, we need real estate. We need property. And, and so Jesus, in his family's eyes, was out of his mind. And so they were trying to stop him from doing his calling. But as we would expect, God's call and God's mission for Jesus won the battle in the tug of war contest, right? Which leads to our first point about the pecking order when it comes to fighting for God, family, and country, and it's this. God's call on our life is greater than our family's concerns. See, there's gonna be times in our lives when God has called us to something and our well-intentioned family members will come alongside of us and try to pull us away from God's calling. If it hasn't happened yet, it will. If you're serious about following God, it will. It might even come in the form or the fashion where your family looks, and you, looks at you when you're sharing what, they, what you believe God is asking them to do and they simply say to you, are you crazy? Are you really seriously considering doing that? Are you really seriously considering giving that amount of money to the IWC? I mean, think of all the things you could do with that, right? I mean, come on. Are you really seriously thinking about moving that far away from us? Are you really seriously thinking about the safety and the well-being of your family? Isn't it dangerous there to do ministry? Couldn't it, couldn't it be potentially harmful for your family? to go there? Isn't this a foolish financial decision? That job does not pay enough. You see, when there is a tug of war for our loyalties and our family's trying to pull us away from what God's calling us to do, we must choose God first. You know, Pastor Kerry shared with me a story this week in his office. We were just writing questions for our life groups um, and looking at this passage. And he told me a story of this family that had this son in his church when he was pastoring in Alabama. And this boy was at like a youth retreat and he felt God call him into ministry. He said, you know what? I wanna pursue full-time vocational ministry with my life. 
And this particular student's parents, hearing that, they became concerned, and so they arranged a meeting with Pastor Kerry. They sat down in Pastor Kerry's office, looked at him and said, listen, we respect what you do, but what we want you to do with our son, we would like for you to convince him to do anything else but this. Anything else. We don't care if he's a lawyer. We don't care if he's a doctor, a teacher, an entrepreneur. He's simply too talented to waste his time doing what you do. I know, right? What an awkward meeting. I, I told Pastor Kerry that. I said, how did that make you feel? What are you saying about me? I'm not talented. Pastor Kerry's very talented, just to get that out of the, he's super talented. And I know this is an extreme example, but again, maybe some of their concerns were legitimate. Maybe they're like, you know what? Pastors, how do they make a living? You know what? What do they do all day at the office anyway? Right? They're not busy. That'd be a waste of your talents. Right? So, so there's these thoughts going through their mind, and they care about their kid. But what does that say about their heart? And imagine that student. A tug of war between his parents who raised him and love him and care about him and say they're for him. And I, I believe they are. I don't know them at all. I, I, you could ask Pastor Kerry about him. But I'm certain that student was like, what do I do here? I'm being pulled in two different directions. Right? Now, I want to speak to you graduates for a moment. Graduates. Right? So you guys are done with high school now. You're inching closer and closer and closer to being in a career. And here's, my, here's what I want you to consider. Don't just find a career. Live out a calling. Now, I want to I be clear here. I am not saying not everybody's called to full-time vocational ministry. In fact, a very small percentage of people are. But I will say this. Everybody is called to full-time vocational ministry, if you get what I'm saying. Everybody's career is meant to be God's call on their life. Every, right, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink, those are tiny little details in your, in your life. Whether you eat or whether you drink, do it all for my glory. So what that means for us is that when we make our career decisions, we can't just be thinking narrow-mindedly and saying this would be the place that would give me the most money or this would be the place that I could advance my career the best. You have to be asking God the whole time, God, guide me, lead me, show me what I'm supposed to do. And then when I get there, open up my eyes to see beyond just a career, but to see the calling that you've called me to, the people I work with, to share the gospel with them the way that I can impact the community, the way that I can use my resources to, to make an investment in the kingdom of God. God, show me. So that's my challenge to you graduates. And here's the thing, that might mean at times your family, they will be giving you loving advice and you should listen to their advice. They know you better than anybody else. But there might be a time, there might be an instance where you have to look at them and say, I lovingly disagree. I'm gonna do what God's asking me to do. That's hard. That's hard. That's what Jesus was doing here. Now I want us to look at Mark 3.22. Mark 3.22. It goes on to read. 
The teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Belzebub, the prince of demons. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Now, I want to go ahead and point out that this, in this verse, Mark is hinting at another tug of war here. And in this particular instance, the, 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 the author, Mark, writes down something that's very significant. He says that the, the teachers of the law were coming down from Jerusalem. This is so much more than just a geographical statement, right? Because if you, if you look on a map, Jerusalem is higher elevation than Galilee. So yes, they would have come down from Jerusalem to see Jesus. But it's more than a geographical statement. The way that it's written seems to indicate that what is being said here is, here are these high and prominent leaders in your national heritage. These are Jewish leaders. These are like your, your senators, your prime minister, your president. They're coming down from Jerusalem to talk to you, Jesus, and they have issues with your ministry. They have interrupted their busy schedules to go see what Jesus is up to because they are against him. See, Jerusalem housed the religious leaders that set the tone for what was and was not acceptable for a good Jewish citizen to do, right? They come up from the holy city and they stoop down to Jesus's level to figure out what he's doing. But here's what we learn from Jesus, that he prioritized God's heart that is to say, the things that God loves, the thing that God cares about, the concerns of God, he prioritized that above his country's heritage. Which leads to our second point. As we're fighting for God, family, and country, we have to have our loyalty for God's heart for the world be greater than our country's heritage. And what that might mean for us as Christians is that our loyalty to Christ might mean that it will disrupt or rub against the powers that be in our country, against the social norms, or better yet, against our beloved political parties. See, I wrote this down. I want to mess this up. I wrote this down. Loyalty to God is going to require you to call into question some of the values of your beloved political party. What I mean by that is this. Being Republican is not, it doesn't run parallel to being Christian. There are things the Republican Party champion that are in direct contrast to the heart of God. Okay? The same goes for being Democrat. Being Democrat does not run parallel to being a Christian. There are things the Democrat party, and part, the Democrat party champions that run in direct contrast to the heart of God. It's true that, that like, Pastor Kerry and I talked about this. If you're just a Republican, you have one enemy, the Democratic Party. If you're just a Democrat, you have one enemy, the Republican Party. If you're a Christian, you have two enemies, both parties. B 
Because the value system of both parties in very, in, in some instances, it takes you away from God's heart. We have to be willing to admit that. We can't look at our political party and be so proud of it because there are lots of instances we should be ashamed of it in both parties. See, our political allegiance has to be kept in check by an eternal perspective. Philippians 3.20 says this, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right, when, you know, it's every election, but I'm using these two characters because they are very well known, right? In 2024, when Trump is pulling our allegiance one direction and Biden is pulling our allegiance another direction, I'm just assuming they're gonna be the... I'm probably, I might be wrong. I'm not a prophet, okay? The thing we need to remember is that our loyalty is with Christ. Our loyalty is with Christ. This is important too because I think if we're not careful, look, we vote with what we talk about. We vote with what we talk about. We show what we're really for by what our mouths say. If we talk more about political agendas than we do about the passages of scripture in our Bibles. If we, if we get into more arguments about our particular view of a particular issue, political issue on Facebook, if we do that more, then we are in the community trying to, to serve the heart of God. Then we are voting that our allegiance is greater for our politics than it is for our savior. Right? We should have less conversations at times about those things and more about what God's heart is for. Like Christians, hear me on this. Christians need to be known not for what they're against, but what, for, but what they are for. And, I do, and again, that's not to say political agenda. I mean that people see Christians and they go, wow, they really are for that because they're proving it by their actions. They love people. They're doing these things. They are showing that their allegiance is with Jesus and there's no doubt about it. You know, in 1 Peter, it talks about the fact that, that the citizens of the kingdom of God, they live as exiles in the land, right? That means they're kind of, they're outcasts, political outcasts. And, but when the unbelieving community comes to ridicule them and malign them, it says they will have no choice but to glorify God because of the works they're doing in the community. They can say all the bad things they want to about them, but they can't deny the fact that Christians are making this place a better place. Because when they live out the heart of God, they're bringing change, they're bringing transformation. We have the opportunity to do that. And by the way, that's exactly what Jesus was doing. The political leaders of Jerusalem were threatened by Jesus. They were threatened by him because he was living out what they called a revolution. All he was doing was listening to the heart of God. So we've got to remember to prioritize our loyalty to Christ. So now we're going to look, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, we're going to skip, if you're reading along in your Bible, we're going to skip verses 23 through 30. 
and circle back around to them at the very end. And we're going to look at Mark 3, 31 through 35. It says this. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. He replied to them, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my, my brother and sister and mother. Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is, oh, I wrote that twice. It's <laughs> funny. See, here we see a third tug of war going on. A third one. And it's simply this. Loyalty to our spiritual family has to be greater to, than loyalty to our blood family. I have to unpack that. But I want you to see this play out. Again, this tug of war happening. Jesus is ministering to his disciples and other people, obviously a large crowd of people that are packed in. And when his family shows up, his disciples do what would be socially acceptable. They say, hey, Jesus, your blood family is here. They are outside. So his disciples are prioritizing getting Jesus to tend to the needs of his blood family. And Jesus points at the people around him. He says, these are my family. These are my brothers, my sister, my mother. And what he was trying to show is that there are times where when we are tending to our spiritual family, that it would be more important for us to remain focused on tending to them than it is tending to our blood family. Or this is a defining moment. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard one to accept. And that is this, that there are times in our lives where God wants us to prioritize our spiritual family above our blood family. Right? Now, I need to mention a few things that Jesus is not teaching here because this is where it gets tricky. The first is this. God is not teaching here that to follow Christ, we can abandon our, responsi our responsibility to care for our blood family. So 1 Timothy 5.8 says this. This is an important verse for us. It says, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So, so hear me when I say that, that I'll just use this as an example. For, for example, if I were to just only serve the church and neglect my family, God would not be happy with that. that God would not be happy with that. The same goes for you. If you are serving the church, you're so involved, but then you're not paying attention to your family at home, that God would be unhappy with that or your career, whatever, you, whatever it is you're doing. You need to prioritize some of the responsibility that comes with taking care of your family. Another place, I'm not gonna read it, but this is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 32 through 35. It points this out to us that God is a realist. He knows that if you have a family, in this particular passage, he's talking to married people and he says, listen, those who are married, they have earthly concerns that they have to take care of, right? They can't only be obsessing over heavenly things because they have these very real physical, emotional, mental needs in their own family that they have to take care of. 
So don't hear me say that when, I, when, I, when I'm saying that God wants us to prioritize our spiritual family above our blood family, I'm not saying we neglect our blood family. God has a very real and important responsibility for us to, 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 to take care of our family, to disciple them, to, to show them love, to, to, to nurture them. So then the question is, what is Jesus emphasizing then? I think to answer that, we look at Luke 14, 26. It's kind of a confusing passage. If you read it out of context, Jesus would seem very conflicted as a person. This is what it says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife, his children, brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Odd passage. I I once talked to a man. He said, the Bible has contradictions. I said, why? He says, it tells us to love people and it tells us to hate our family. I said, where are you getting that? He pulled out this verse. Now, this is what any literary um, individual who understands literary functions and metaphors and hyperbole, that's what this is. Jesus is saying, look, your love for me should be so large. Your allegiance to following me should be so large that at moments in your life, it looks like your loyalty to me is the neglect of your family. At certain moments in your life, your love for me will be so big, it will look like you've minimized your love for your family. It's hyperbole. Jesus is saying, look, if you want to be my disciple, your family cannot be your idol. You have to love and serve me first. You have to love and serve me first. I want to make a few statements. The first is this. Christ's bride, his wife, his, his bride, is not the family, Right? doesn't say that Jesus died for the family. It says that Jesus died for what? The church. That is the family of God, not the building. He died for the family of God. And again, God has some massive expectations for us as a family, but, but, but this is important. If I understand God's word correctly, it means that our individual families are temporary. Our individual families are temporary, but our, eternal, but our spiritual family is eternal. So, so the practical application for us is simple, that there are going to be instances in our life where our devotion to God and to the church will look like the neglect of our family. The best example I have of this and, and the statement I want to make is this. Ministry, ministry, if you're going to serve God in ministry, I'm not talking vocational ministry. I'm talking ministry, you serving God, doing what God's called you to do. If you're going to do that, that's going to be a sacrifice on your family. It's inevitable. It will be a sacrifice on your family. So I'm a student pastor, and I have, um, I have many nights that it require me to be away from my family, okay? So to share with you a story that happened recently. So I was leaving on a Tuesday night. It, you know, Monday night we have high school ministry, and Tuesday we have uh, middle school ministry, and I was leaving my house, and Azariah came in to give me a kiss, my two-year-old son, and, he's, and he looked at me and he said, Daddy, no, no Bible study. And he, and he, was, he was adamant. He's saying, no church, no. And, you know, maybe like, if I'm honest, and then he started crying. And I was like, I, honestly, if I'm being honest, I would much rather stay home now because of that. But I gave him a hug, I gave him a kiss, and I say what I genuinely say, gen- generally say, and that was this. Daddy has to go share Jesus with, with some people. He has to go tell people about God. 
Now, if I did that all the time and neglected my family, that would not be good. But it's undeniable that there are little sacrifices I have to make to invest in young people with the gospel at the expense of my family. And the same is true for us, right? So we have this important thing that um, we, we, we do with our house is we, we, you know, very often talk to our kids about the sacrifices of talking about Jesus. So if it's if Ashley's leaving to go serve in a ministry and our kids are sad, we just, we try to, instead of say, oh, she's gone again, or, or Ashley does this too, oh, he's gone, he has to go again. It's more like he gets to go again. He gets to go talk about Jesus or she gets to go lead that Bible study. And it's important because what we're doing is we're teaching our kids the importance and the value of serving Christ. And it's ironic because, because it, looks like a, it looks like by doing so, we're pulling, our, pulling away from our loyalty to our family. But I would say this, that if it is our responsibility to disciple our kids, to show them the ways of the gospel, then it would be to their detriment if we always prioritize their immediate needs over the needs of others. Because we would be implicitly saying to them, ministry is not important. And then when we go ask them to serve Jesus, they're like, why? You don't. And so, so we, have to, we have to see those as opportunities, right? And I, I, would, I dare say this. We need to ask ourselves the question, what sacrifices in our lives are we making with our families to serve God? If we can't ask, answer that question, we have to do some analysis of what we're doing with our time. And let me be clear, by serving God, I'm not, I'm not suggesting you have to be plugged into the, like a particular ministry here at Grace. Look, listen, this is the thing I've learned about God. He calls you individually. He's going to show you things that you can do for the kingdom, even if we might not be aware of them as pastors or whatever, or as spiritual leaders. But you'll know if you're fooling yourself or not. Does that make sense? You'll know if you're really truly serving Christ or not. Now I need to wrap up. I want to look at one more passage, or one more part of the passage in Mark 3, 23 through 30, that kind of ties all this together. It says this, it's kind of an odd, if you just read it, you'd be like, what is he talking, he was talking about his family, then all of a sudden he's talking about demons, and now he's back to talking to his family, I don't get it. Verse 23 through 30 says this, so Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. He says, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot, cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven of all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Now again, you read that passage, you're like, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Two quick things. First of all, remember, his family comes to collect him and says, he's insane. That phrase alone in that day and age 
Insanity or being a lunatic was often linked to demonic, uh, demonic activity. So some would say, scholars would say, Jesus' family is saying he might be oppressed by some kind of evil spirit. Then you've got the religious leaders coming down from the holy city, checking on Jesus, and they say about Jesus, he's casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, which is a phrase they use to refer to Satan. So in other words, Jesus isn't doing the work of God, he's doing the work of Satan, which is bizarre because he's healing people and preaching the gospel. And so Jesus gives them this kind of picture. He's like, look, just listen to what you're saying. If you're, if, <laughs> listen to yourself. You're saying I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan. That makes no sense. It looks like Satan's fighting Satan. That doesn't make sense. I'm sharing the gospel by the power of Satan? No, Satan doesn't want the gospel shared. That doesn't make sense. So Jesus is pointing out that's foolish. But then he makes these statements that are kind of interesting. He says, every sin and every slander can be forgiven, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of eternal sin. And here's where we're going with this because this is super important. Jesus is giving us, I think, in an indirect way, and he was giving to the religious leaders and to his family a very serious warning. And this is the warning, right? I'm kind of trying to bring it into a contextualized versions that applies to us specifically. The warning was this, rejecting the work of God on earth can lead to rejecting the work of God in us. Rejecting the work of God on earth can lead to rejecting the work of God in us. Here's kind of what it boils down to. Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry threatened the religious leaders and Jesus' families' privilege, their power, their lifestyle. That is to say that they're like, look, all that Jesus is doing may ruin these things for us. The religious leaders, they may have lost their following. Seemed like everybody was ditching them to follow Jesus. So they were threatened. And that threat led, led to fear. And so they started saying, Jesus is doing this by the power of Satan. They were basically all they were, I am against what Jesus is doing on earth. And Jesus' family, same thing. They saw Jesus doing these miracles and all these things and it was drawing attention on him and they said, I don't want to be lumped into that. I like my life. I enjoy my current lifestyle. I'm enjoying it, right? And so, so when, the, when, when his family shows up, they say he's insane and Jesus is saying, listen, you're resisting my work on earth because you're afraid that you'll be associated with me and by being associated with me, you'll lose maybe your house or your job because the society will look at you as an oddball. You'll lose your social status, all these things. And so, so what we see is this, that if we're not careful because of fear or out of selfishness or, or some reason like that, we can look at what God is calling us to or we can look at the things that God is doing in and through other people, we can point at it and be critical of it because we're afraid of what it will cost us if we'll actually jump in. I think a lot of times we criticize, like for example, maybe a, a ministry 
that's a different denomination than us or whatever, and they're doing this work for Jesus, and you can see it's a great work, but we go, but they believe in this doctrine. Or, they, or I, I heard they have snakes in their service. That's weird, so I don't like them. Or we can see, you know, an organization or a Christian leader support maybe a political party that's different than ours, make an endorsement to them and say, oh, oh you know, we, we, you know, he likes this political party, so I, I think he is evil, he's evil. And what we are doing in our hearts is we're creating this, this critical spirit of other people that are doing God's work. And in doing so, we're creating this resistant attitude to the work of God. And then when God comes knocking at the door of our heart to do some work inside of us, we have blocked him. We've blocked him. And so I think the warning is very clear here. Look, a lifetime of this critical spirit where we're so resistant to anything and everything that looks different than our little box, what we call religion, or how we think following Jesus works, and we're so resistant and we push it away and we push it away and we push it away. If we're not careful, we'll push away the very work of the Spirit of God in our lives. And that's, by the way, what I believe Jesus is saying here about the religious leaders. He's, he's, he's warning them, saying, listen, if you continue to have this attitude throughout the course of your life where you're pointing at me as I'm doing these miracles and, and you're saying, he does that by the power of Satan, you'll never be forgiven, not because God doesn't want to forgive you or that he can't forgive you. It's simply because you're rejecting it. So it's so important for us as Christians to avoid a critical spirit, to avoid pointing at anything that, that's Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and living out the gospel, to point at that and be critical because if we're not careful, we're blocking ourselves off to the work of God. I want to close with this, and I know I ran over, and I close with this thought, because I, I think, or this application, I should say. If you are in a position right now in your life where you look at the life, maybe the lives or the ministries of people you know around you, it won't be me, I guarantee there's so many more faithful servants in this room. You look at them and you go, and you go wow, they're doing a lot for Jesus. But somewhere in your heart, you're trying to find the inconsistency in their life or that thing and point out and criticize it. You need to repent. You repent. If you're in the habit of looking at pastors and leaders of other churches and you hear little tidbits, I'm not saying don't be discerning, right? You need to discern things. But if your habit is to just call them evil even though they're doing things for Jesus, you need to repent. I need to repent. Because I do that at times. I'm critical of maybe a different denomination that does things a little different than me. I think that sort of thing fragments the body of Christ. It fragments the body of Christ and it keeps us from fully experiencing Christ in our hearts. But I also want to speak to those of you who maybe you're like, you came in this room, you're like, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. I don't want anything to do with him. I've been resisting him. I don't want to trust him. 
Or, or maybe it's, and maybe the reason is, is because you look at the Christian lives, the lives of Christians around you and go, you know what? These individuals, they're just, they're not, they're not authentic. They're hypocritical. They're hypocritical. And, you point, and you're so worried about pointing out their inconsistencies. Hear, hear me when I say this. Don't allow, the inconsist, don't allow the inconsistencies in my life to keep you from trusting Jesus. Your criticism of me might be warranted, but your criticism of God is not. Right? So let that guard down. Let God love you and say yes to him. In spite of me, in spite of that person, you say, oh, I know that Christian, they're horrible. In spite of that person, trust Jesus because he can't be criticized. And that's what this is saying. Look, you can say all sorts of slander and all these things, but don't blaspheme. Don't resist the spirit of God. The spirit of God is calling you to repentance. Repent today. Repent today. Let's, let's pray together. God, I just pray that you, would work in our lives in such a way that we allow the tug of war between you, our family, and our country, we always let you win in our lives. Lord, keep us, Jesus, from having that critical spirit, pointing out all the things that are wrong. Lord, give us a receptive spirit to celebrate the things you're doing in the world. And then give us a receptive spirit to receive the work that you want to do in our hearts, Lord. That's my prayer as we leave this place, Lord. We do business with you. We would not be resistant to what you're trying to do in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.